to the J. Kim Show, Hong Kong's first dedicated podcast on investing in Asia. Join us as we survey the land and discover the greatest companies and most profitable investment opportunities in Asia. If this is your first time listening, thank you for stopping by. This podcast is produced every week with the goal of providing actionable insights to you, the listener, with every single episode. And now, on to the show. Today's show guest is Kevin Massengill, the founder and CEO of a fintech data analytics firm called Meriglim. Kevin has a unique background in military defense contracting and Wall Street, which led him down this journey to build a technology that uses predictive data analytics, which was originally conceived for use by the U.S. intelligence community, and then applying this data to identify global threats and opportunities to institutional investors and government agencies through warnings and signals. A very interesting conversation we have today. We go pretty deep, but I think you guys will enjoy this one. Let's get on to the show. Kevin, how are you doing? Thank you so much for coming on the show. We're very happy to have you on. Oh, thank you, Jay. Another lovely day in paradise. Thanks. <laughs> That's right. Uh, and uh, I, I'm, I'm really excited, actually, to have you on the show because uh, you, you are working on a very, very unique and special project that you kind of have, uh, and you also have a very unique background, and you've kind of, uh, I guess, married some of the your your previous experiences and, and career uh, paths into into what you're working on now. So why don't you give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are? And uh, and kind of give us some background on uh, on on what you worked on in the past and how that led to what you're working on now. Oh boy. Okay. Sure. So I'm a, um, a retired military officer. Was uh, spent a misspent youth in uh, in the infantry, and then as a uh, Middle East foreign area officer, bouncing around from various embassies and, and headquarters in the region. Um, had the dubious privilege of, of never having a single piece of advice ever taken. So I don't know why they called me an advisor of any sort. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we really enjoyed where we were at in Abu Dhabi and we had kids in high school and didn't want to move them again. So we retired in place and I opened a company and, and began doing capital introduction and general uh, business development across a number of countries. We wound up opening offices in, in Doha and New Delhi um, as well as Abu Dhabi and Dubai. And then got recruited by Raytheon to take over the Middle East. Uh, did that for a number of years. Uh, wound up their, their uh, head of international operations. And then back to capital introduction again for a boutique investment bank in Manhattan. Got recruited back into the defense world again as the senior vice president for international for one of the defense contractors called Lidos. Uh, used to be SAIC. Um, and, and at some point in the middle of all that, I ran into Jim Rickards. I was the, at the time I was the ranking U S defense executive living in the middle East. My peers were all, all commuting in from Washington, DC. And so I got invited to some, some really interesting conferences and Jim was a keynote speaker at one in Bahrain hosted by, uh, international Institute of uh, security studies that was on, um, geopolitics and, and, currency as a weapon and that sort of thing. Right. There was about 60 of us in the room and and it was a bunch of uh, ex-defense ministers and finance ministers and it was a really interesting eclectic group. And, and it turned out out of that whole group that Jim and I were pretty much the only two kind of Austrian hard money gold guys in the room. Uh, everybody else <laughs> were the normal Keynesian, yeah. um, you know, the alchemy of its of our day as I think of it. Um, 
you know, and so, so we were the only ones that would laugh at each other's jokes. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the room is going to stare at you stonily. Like, huh, I kind of like that guy. <laughs> I'd already read his book. Uh, I'd read his book, Currency War. So went over and shook yep. his hand. And it was the only one that was out at the time. So this was back, back a while. And we talked a little bit about the project prophecy thing that, uh, that he did for the agency. Uh, you may recall it was after 9-11, the agency wanted to know whether it was possible to build an algorithm that would scan open market global financial data and look for the kind of anomalies that might signal another 9-11. And, and you know, if so, could you get that information in enough time to, to get a warrant, kick down a door, stop the attack kind of thing? And, and Jim and some colleagues built it. And, and it worked really well. And and for a host of political, domestic political reasons, the agency closed it down, not because it, it didn't work, worked really well. And what Jim and I talked about doing was whether or not that would could, could be used as the basis for something we could build upon, expand upon, and take that to global financial markets. Because, you know, if you're running billions of dollars of capital, you care deeply about global macro events, too. Right, you don't mm-hmm. you don't like surprises anymore in the U.S. government. So what we've done is we've taken the Bayesian inference mathematical basis of of the first thing he did for the agency, and that's two hundred year old math, right? That's just what we do if we're intelligence analysts. We just posit our best hypothesis, and then we think as deeply as we can about what are the indications and warnings that would confirm or deny if you're right, right, or tell you you're. You're moving in the wrong direction, and then you constantly update your hypothesis with new data. Pretty, mm-hmm. pretty simple, two hundred year old math. Um, but then we added to that Bayesian, uh, to that Bayesian inference, we added behavioral psychology, history, and complexity science, because in actual fact, capital markets are dynamic, adaptive systems. They're not machines. They don't lend themselves to being tinkered with at the margins, right? Let, let me give you an example. If if you and I were somewhere and, and we listened to a ranger get up in front of us and start talking about how they're going to fix Yosemite, the national park, right? Right. They're going to, they're going to dial up the number of badgers. They're going to dial back the number of bears. They're going to make it better. You know, we'd all just look at each other and think they were an idiot, Right, because y- you have no idea what the outcome is going to be of the changes you make to a complex adaptive system. Right, right? you're going to get a whole host of unintended consequences you can't begin to calculate because you're not God. Right, it's Hayek's fatal conceit on steroids, and yet, and yet, we collectively nod our heads and 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 thoughtfully listen to chowder heads like Yellen or Bernanke or government officials or Christine Lagarde, as they just pontificate on how they're going to fix the world's economy. They're going to dial up a little inflation. They're going to dial down some unemployment, right? Right. And, and instead of nodding thoughtfully, we should be getting them padded rooms, right, and special jackets. These people <laughs> are insane. And the, the, the hubris, the arrogance um, for them to think – that they can manipulate the entire world's economy, which they're trying to do by manipulating the price signal in which everything else is measured, right? Money itself, currency itself. Um, it, it, it's just a, a hubris beyond belief. So what Jim and I have done is we've brought the right models um, to, the, to the right problem. Here's, 
Here's another way to think about it. 400 years ago, maybe a little longer, mid-1500s, you had the science of its day. Now, this was the most learned people, very long lead time to train for it, long apprenticeship, journeyman, guild training, you know, very much to memorize the vast body of knowledge in alchemy. And, and it was all wrong, all of it. But they didn't know it. They had no idea. They thought it was right. And they spent enormous amounts of effort and time and capital playing in this field that was completely, the models were all completely wrong. But all of a sudden, in the mid-1500s, somebody invents a thermometer. And all of a sudden, for the first time, you can begin to take actual measurements. You can begin to record what happens. You can begin to see what catalysts do at what temperatures in a repeatable experiment basis, right? Within 50 years, alchemy has completely transformed itself to become the foundations of scientific chemistry and modern metallurgy, right? Right. In just 50 years from the time... These very bright people whose models were just wrong got better data, got better ways of measuring data, got a better understanding of how the world actually worked, right? It's not that they were bad people. It's not that they were stupid. Not at all. They were well-intended, very intelligent people, and their models were just wrong. I think that is a perfect analogy of what we're suffering right now in the economics profession in the Western world, in the modern world. And, of course, government politicians don't understand anything. They'll do whatever it takes to get them, you know, free chicks and, and re-election. Right? They, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have a clue. Um, but, the, but, the, but the politician, the, but the econ profession has this – we laugh at the physics envy, right? You know, they're, they're, they're modern phys, you know, economic textbooks are just loaded with elegant math equations, right? That anybody that knows anything about Austrian economics or about people in general just know it's all nonsense. It's just all patent, right. silly nonsense. Um, but they've spent years learning that math. <laughs> and it's tough. It's hard. You got to be really smart. You got to be really diligent. And and so then I'm going to give that up lightly. And so Jim and I feel like we are he likes to use the analogy of Copernicus. I would use the analogy of the thermometer. Uh, we are going to pull a branch of human knowledge forward violently toward reality. <laughs> um, and, and, and we're going to do it in a really short period of time. I mean, they'd have got there eventually, maybe a hundred years or so, but you know, right. Max Planck, Max Planck used to, used to say all knowledge advances with the death of one tenured professor at a time. <laughs> there you go. There you go. So, yeah, so um, sorry to interject here. So I just wanted to to take a little bit of a step back for for some of the listeners. So, look, we're going we're going pretty deep, and I've, we've we've spoken before. So I know that uh, you're you're speaking at a pretty high level. So basically, uh, you know, I mean, I think that first of all, you have a very unique background. So I think the sort of again the the marriage of of what you've done in the past has led you down this path. Obviously, you uh, were fortunate to meet Jim Rickards. And for the audience listening in, I mean, you can literally just Google Jim Rickards' name. He's he's a best-selling, like a New York Times best-selling author. He used to be, he actually, I believe he used to work at Long-Term Capital Management, right? So he he's very well. He was the, uh, so think about how competent a lawyer in a financial capital markets world he must have been for the long-term capital management. For your listeners who don't remember that, 
They were the Olympic team. This was the, the yep. 14 economic PhDs, two Nobel Prize winners. <laughs> they, had, they had some extraordinary brain power. And Jim Rickards was the gentleman they asked to be their attorney, their, their OGC. Yeah, um, yeah, absolutely. So like you said, is the Olympic team. And so he's, Jim's obviously seen, uh, you know, has seen this sort of disconnect between academia and, and book smarts between <laughs> and, and the reality. And so, um, and I love your analogy of, of central bankers being like park rangers trying to, trying to, uh, to shift the, uh, the, the Yosemite park ecosystem. Uh, and, and that's, that's, a, that I actually agree with you. I mean, I think there's, most people don't actually know. I mean, we both know that mainstream media is, is misleading and, and what we hear and see on the news is, is not actually what's going on or, or at the best interest of, of the population. So having, uh, you know, now with this backdrop, and thanks for the, the great detailed introduction on how you, you kind of went down this path. Let us talk a little bit about the exciting new uh, technology, which you started talking about, but then specifically your company. So I want to get into that. <laughs> Thanks. Sorry about <laughs> going off track on you. So, so what we did was we took this company, we, we took a core analytic engine that we've already created. And what we decided was the right way to do this is to blend human intelligence with machine intelligence, right? So artificial intelligence has largely been a disappointment and that's because people have asked it to do more than it could do. You know, the old saw that machines are fast, accurate, and stupid and humans can be quite slow, prone to error, but can be brilliant, right? Right. It's the marriage of the two that is so powerful. It's why any chess champion like Gasparov or any super blue chess computer, supercomputer will always be defeated by three average human chess players paired with two average computers. That five unit collective of, of some average American, average human brain power and, and some average computing power will defeat a, a supercomputer or even a, a grand national champion every time. Right. It's really curious. It's the power, it's the combination of the two that make it so powerful. And so what we've done is we've taken the very best of the human intelligence world. I've, I've spent some time in that world. Jim has, our, our leadership all have actually. We all had TSSCI clearances at one point or another. Um, and, and we've taken the very best of the intelligence world in that Bayesian process. And now imagine you've got this this idea, you've posited your hypothesis, but now you turn to Watson and you say, all right, here's all the nodes, here's all the conceptual components, here's all the edges to connect them and the weightings we've given them. Now, that's global- IBM, IBM's Watson, right? That's right. That's right. right. IBM Watson's our tech partner on this. Right. In fact, their CTO of Cognitive Services, charming lady who owns all of that, um, pulled me aside on our second day and said, this is the coolest thing they've got to work on. Um, and, and, and it's, it's because it's, it's not just elegant science. It solves a really big problem. (laughs) Um, when you can see into the future three to six months, you know, it looks like magic, right? And, and I'm reminded of Arthur C. Clarke and I should probably put this on our website. Arthur C. Clarke, uh, the, the brilliant science fiction writer, futurist had a wonderful comment about that. He said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. 
That a great line. It's huh. a good one. So, so you know, it looks magical. It looks like we can see the future. And of course, we can't see the future. What we can see is the data. And because we're getting the ingest from Watson, and it's reading 9 million books, articles, transcripts a day, wow. right? I mean, I mean, think about the average analyst. You comes back to work on a Monday morning. They've got two or 300 single line headlines racked and stacked in their Bloomberg terminal or their Thomson yeah, Reuters. Exactly. That's like every day for me. <laughs> exactly. And you're supposed to open those up and figure out which ones matter to you and integrate what happened with everything else that happened and everything else you knew previously. I mean, it's just a ridiculously complicated task, right? It's We're not God. It's too much data. But, but imagine if you, if you had a team of really smart people map out all the connections, all the nodes, everything that touches on something you care about, and then task Watson to evaluate the world's inputs to each of those nodes and update them in real time. Right. Now you come back on a Monday morning, you ask our system, Raven, what happened over the weekend? Oh, Raven knows what you care about. In this case, let's say it's the Chinese yuan devaluation you and I talked about before. Right. Raven, what's happened over the weekend? It knows. It looks at the nodes that you care about. It says there were four inputs um, to four different nodes. Would you like to hear them? Sure. So Raven is the name of, of this technology that you that you guys created. It is. We 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 did. We called it that because um, for two reasons. One, it's a it's a it's a core part of our logo. And we chose the logo because a Raven is fairly prominent in in prophecy both both uh, in Christianity and in just Western um, uh, religion right. so uh, a, raven, a raven's what Noah sends out to look for land a raven's what feeds Elijah and yet a, a raven in in the Norse mythology of course is a is a major prophetical character right uh, and then we named the company Maragleam. Um, I don't know if you and I've talked about that. I was just going to ask you because we did talk about it. And I think it's so cool how you guys came up with the name. <laughs> and we wanted to convey the idea of, of active reconnaissance, going out to look for risks and look for opportunities. And we spent a lot of time thinking about that. And we came across this wonderful word in Hebrew. Everybody's heard the story and nobody's heard the word, very few. And the, and the, the Hebrew story comes from Numbers chapter 13, when Moses assembles a reconnaissance unit drawn from the 12 crown princes of the 12 tribes right. and sends them into the promised land for 40 days. And they come out and of course, 10 are famously panicked, right? <laughs> nothing but risk. Um, nothing <laughs> but two, Joshua and Caleb famously see the upside, right? Right. And then there's a proper name in Hebrew called the Meraglim or anglicized the Meraglim. Um, mm. And that's the proper name for that team. Uh, and ancient Talmudic scholars would call that, translate that the spies, which may have been a good translation 600, you know, a thousand years ago. But today, that's, we know that's not spy in the sense we use the word today. That's reconnaissance, right? right. That's, a, that's, that's a completely different function. And so to find that word in that team for us is a perfect, uh, perfect fit. Oh, yeah. Perfect fit. 
So uh, let's go back to the uh, to the analogy or the, the example you were giving. So I, I go into my uh, I go to work m- Monday morning. I log into my Bloomberg terminal, and I'm I'm uh, specifically worried because I'm being based here in Hong Kong. I'm obviously worried about uh, you know what's going on in China. You know, obviously there's some tensions with the U.S. Uh, mm-hmm. The currency is always uh, you know a, a big asterisk or question mark. You know, 2015 we saw the yuan devalue, uh, which caused ripples throughout the world, uh, global financial markets. So this is always in the, in the back of my mind. You know, I'm, I'm managing some money here uh, for institutional investors. And obviously, all of these things matter. I have to process all these data, hundreds of lines of Bloomberg's from brokers and, and news, news feeds and this sort of thing. So let's go back to that example. Uh, how does Raven help me? Yeah, so, so Raven does an audio input. You sit down and say, so Raven, what's happened over the weekend? Well, Raven knows you care about the four key, you know, you've told us what you care about, right? So we're dragging on that for you because you're a client. Right. And and Raven will tell you, okay, well, of the four things you're tracking, two had nodal impacts that we judge to be, you know, significant. Uh, would you like to hear them? Yes. Deputy Central Bank Governor gave a speech in Beijing. We judged it supportive of the thesis. Would you like to hear the text? Yes. And it will read you that guy's speech. Right. Um, You will even if you disagreed with us, even if you disagreed with our thesis of what we thought the outlook meant or what the data meant, you're going to have so much better real time intelligence at your fingertips to make your own decisions than you could possibly have. And it wouldn't matter if you had a team of 100 analysts working that problem. They're, they're human, and it's too much data to sift through, sort, assimilate. And so, so when you're looking at our product, and I don't know if you saw the, the demo we did with IBM. Yeah, yeah. But there's a, Amazing. Uh, it, I'm going to get that linked up. Well, I don't know. Is that, is that out there in sure. the public domain? Can I link that up in the – okay. Cool. Uh, it's not, but you're, well, you're free to. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> and, and so it's a constellation, right, of ideas, and each idea is a – you could think of it as a, a point of light or a, a planetary body in a constellation. And and as you're looking at the whole, you can click on any one of them and it'll drill right down into it. You can click on any of the supporting nodes. You can click on any of the edges between them and it will tell you the weighting and the impact that we see from one to the other. And and so you can drill down and understand exactly why how we think the data all fits together and impacts each other. And then as a client, you can come back and tell us, you know, what else would be interesting to know? It would help me if if you could track the the, the Chinese Australian cross rate, right? Can we add that? Right. Right. You will you the client will tell us additional ideas, right? And, and one of the things I'm most excited about is we're going to do a lash up with the human intelligence side. So in the United States, you have something called DARPA, which is a pretty well-known defense advanced research projects agency. It's a, it's a really good think tank uh, for us defense. Well, there's right. in, in a, you know, a few years back, Another one was created called IARPA, and that's the that's the exact same function, but now for the intelligence community, the Intelligence Advanced Research Projects. And some years ago, they decided they would hold a contest on prediction, and they wanted to know whether or not people could come up with or conceive of a methodology that would be a have a higher predictive accuracy than the control group, and the control group were the intelligence community itself, right? The subject matter experts studying on a particular problem. 
five teams went at this. All of them principally, I think all of them were led by different universities. The, the team led by Dr. Philip Tetlock and his, uh, and his colleague, uh, Dr. Mary, uh, I'm going to screw her name up. My apologies. The two of them put a team together and they not only outperformed all the other four teams, the other four teams, four years running, right? For all the years of the, of the experiment, they beat the control. They beat the intelligence community accuracy by some 50 to 60%. Well, that group we're in talks with about tapping them, their people and their methodology to be our initial human front end that helps create what becomes the fuzzy cognitive map that you saw in the demo. And, and, Imagine if you're already one of these super forecasters that are, that really are very good at this, and I come along and say, "Oh, by the way, um, not only are, are we going to leverage you into this and, and and pay you, we will let you task Watson." Mm. So, how fun would that be if you like doing this anyway? And and you know, you tell me what data, what data point do you think would help you in in pinning down the accuracy of this prediction? And, and we'll just add that to the what we call a fuzzy cognitive map, but that becomes a tasking to Watson, right? right? And so you as an analyst, you as a client, are not only getting to do inputs to us of things you think would help, you're getting the benefit of my human intelligence network that's all doing this in a collaborative fashion as well. And so, it, it, so again, we've not invented uh, water. I mean, we haven't. Bayesian inferences has been around for 200 years, right? That's 200-year-old math. Complexity science has been around for 60 years. If you and I worked at the National Weather Station tracking hurricanes, we'd be using complexity science every day, right? Uh, If we were research analysts at at Los Alamos, we'd be using complexity science every day, uh, doing nuclear, nuclear modeling. But for a host of reasons that I alluded to earlier, this science, which is actually much more germane or applicable to capital markets than anybody in the economics profession can admit uh, has been just let pass them by. It's just let them, they've just let it go by. And instead they've stuck with their value at risk, equilibrium models, efficient market hypothesis, all these just nonsensical ideas that I literally liken to alchemy. Um, You know, here's, here's a great one. Keynesian premise of animal spirits, right? We can just have everybody kite checks to each other, Right. right? And everybody will get excited about that. Assume that there's real economic productivity behind all that and go out and just start spending money. And that will just magically cause the economy to take off again. And they, and they call it animal spirits. I mean, really, really? <laughs> and, and yet, that is a you know serious, thoughtful people from very good schools <laughs> with higher IQs than mine will nod thoughtfully and stroke their chin and go, "Yes, of course, that's that's right." <laughs> Again, the, the central bankers, the park rangers, you know, the animal spirits and the badgers, we're, we're running around. Like, <laughs> um, yeah, so. Listen, I mean, it's 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 a it's a very interesting technology you guys have come up with. Uh, let's talk specifically about um, who are your ideal clients and what's what's your business model. Uh, you know, is it a subscription base? I mean, it obviously sounds like due to the uh, complexity and the high level of technology that's involved and the team and this sort of thing. It's it's definitely a, um, a institutional grade product. Right. Tell us about your the, the revenue model and the business itself. Yeah, sure. So the revenue model is ridiculously high. 
and and, uh, <laughs> and for a couple of reasons. Not uh, one because we can, <laughs> but but the real <laughs> the real reason is that I have this enormous wall of skepticism to get up over. Right? If you go up yeah. to a hedge fund trader and say, "Hey, I can show you the, what's happening in the world three to six months in advance," right? His first reaction is going to be, "You know, horseshit." Right? No, you can't. <laughs> and, and because if you could, you wouldn't be selling it to me. Yeah. You'd be trading it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Totally. You go run money with it. Right. Exactly. And that's the, that's the logical first reaction. And in fact, that was my first thought when Jim and I first conceived of doing this as a commercial product. My first assumption was I was just going to call some friends of mine, do a $2 billion fund and get at it. Right. 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 And, but, but here's, here's why we're not going to do that uh, for two reasons. One, you can't make anywhere near as much money running money as I can selling subscriptions at $5 million per year, right? Because, <laughs> and, and quite frankly, it's worth way more than that. Uh, it's just going to start at 5 million and go up. If, if, if you don't want to pay me 5 million, actually, I'm going to be fine with that. I'll say that's, that's fantastic. That's great. Give me 10% of everything you make off of my outlooks. I'm going to make way more than 5 million. Right. <laughs> You'll wish you'd taken the first deal. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> the other, the other advantage <laughs> of doing it the way we're doing it is we're running it as a business to business software as a service to your point of subscriptions, right? The reason we chose that model is because in the business world right now, and these things change, but right now, the highest multiple business you can do is a B2B SaaS. Because that recurring revenue model is so steady, it's so predictable, it can generate on average, with a nice growth story, it can generate on average 10-time multiple to top-line revenue. Think of that. So that means for every subscription I sell, we've added another $50 million to our valuation. For every 20 subscriptions we sell, we've added a billion dollars to our valuation. Right. Think of that. And at a universe of 55,000 firms that we judge between hedge funds, pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, insurance, asset management, trust companies, just in the financial services, right? We judge globally that's about 55,000 firms managing about $380 trillion in assets. Wow. And all I need are 100 to be a $5 billion company. So when you do the math, it's, it that helps me get over the wall of skepticism to the hedge fund operator who thinks, well, this can't possibly be real. Why would you sell it? Well, brother, because I can get a 10-time multiple to top line revenue <laughs> by selling it. <laughs> That's why. So, so there's the first reason for the ridiculously high price. The second reason is that that is actually market normal. You can go in the market and in our deal documents, you'll find comps where we show published you know, general services administration, government you know, contracting catalogs where firms that are doing predictive analytics, not in capital markets, but in social media and other things that matter for those clients um, are charging roughly that price. Right. So, so it's not totally lunacy, right? And then again, the third point is it's about value. It's not about price, right? If, if I can show you a 20 to one ROI, you don't give a damn what the price is. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, so my point, and so that can, answers your second question about who are our, is our natural target we're going to go to firms that have initially that have three billion dollars assets under management and above because I wanted firms whose minimum 
investment size, roughly $30 million, it's inconceivable that if they execute on any one of our recommendations, they wouldn't make at least $100 million. Right. And, and by making $100 million, I've given them a 20-time ROI. Right. So that's, that's right. how we backed into what size firm we wanted to focus on. So uh, in addition, I guess, to, in addition to Raven, what else do you get for $5 million bucks a year? Uh, <laughs> Well, so let me, let me give an example of some of the things that we've done. So we called the English departure from Brexit months, months ahead of everybody else. And that was way out of consensus. We called the Trump election weeks before the election. Again, 99% out of consensus. Mm-hmm. If you'd have taken our advice and gone long gold and short the Mexican peso, you made 4,250% return in 16 hours. You don't have to do very many of those to have a really good year. Wow. Right? (laughs) Conversely, your competitor doesn't have to do many of those to have a really good year. And you'll be buying us just because they got it. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. Um, the, The third thing we did was we called the March interest rate hike four months early. And this is the entire world was giving that a, the futures market was giving that a 20% probability. We said it's 80% plus. And then three weeks before the Fed meeting, Fed kind of panics and goes, oh my goodness, these knuckleheads don't listen. You know, they're not listening to us. And so they did four speeches in four days in a row from the only four voices that mattered. And all of a sudden the market just, you know, whoop, and does a parabolic curve like a Bitcoin. Uh, and they come up and joined us <laughs> at uh, 90%. Um, well, there's a lot of money to be made when the consensus is at 20% and, and, and you're four months out and, and they're just wrong. There's a lot of money to be made. So another part of our business model, um, I'm going to do a money back guarantee, right? Because I don't care. Um, So so if you're not happy, I'll I'll give you your $5 million back. It it means nothing to me. Obviously, I've got to set aside some funds for that, right? I'll have an actuarial help run that up. But that float, I will carry. We're going to invest. And we're just going to divide the float into 10 chunks. And we're just going to keep placing bets on our own outlooks, Right. right, because they're such asymmetric trades, and 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 I'm thinking about how I have either Accenture or Pricewaterhouse or somebody handle that or monitor it, so that I've got you know a fantastic third party credible you know track record. And that's a fun that's a fun in the future on the back of that. And, and yeah, exactly. And it lets me um, you know eventually we'll we'll sail into really tough waters again, like we did in 2008. And, and when that happens, we plan to, you know, to have a sufficient pool of capital that we can wade in aggressively and start buying up, uh, buying up firms, anybody that touches complexity science or augmented intelligence and has an intelligent business model will, will roll up. There you go. So that's, um, that's the plan. That's awesome. Um, thanks for the, the awesome, uh, overview. I mean, I think it's, I think a lot of our listeners will be intrigued at, 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 uh, at what you guys are working on. Um, unfortunately, most of them probably can't afford you, but, uh, um, for well, so most of them aren't intended to be clients, but they could certainly be investors, right? So if you've got investors, Surf on over to um, either my website, marigleam.com, or go to Fundable, the largest um, crowdsourced um, business fundraising. We put it on Fundable. Um, okay. And go to Fundable and just hit our name, Marigleam, or hit Artificial Intelligence will be the first thing that comes up. And uh, just right. check out the offer and see what you think. It's um, I can tell you that the, the head, the woman who owns Watson, so think how cool the stuff she's working on, right? This is the uh, CTO for IBM's Cognitive Services. 
She's probably got a hundred peer-reviewed articles, 30 some odd patents in the space. Wicked smart. First, first Indian female named a, an IBM Global Fellow ever and, and a super nice lady. She looked at this and thought it was the coolest thing they had to work on. So if you've got people that like like the space, like IBM, like Jim Rickards, kind of tend to agree with us that there's just something a little bit off with governments and central planners, <laughs> you, know, you should take a look at what we're doing. Look outside of the, of the, of the uh, park, right? Um, <laughs> thank you so much, Kevin. I, you, you've already answered sort of what was going to be my last question, which is where to find you and follow you and this sort of thing. Um, I, I guess I want to just uh, maybe you could tease the, the audience with a final sort of, uh, you know, uh, a freebie. Where, where should we be concerned about right now based on your models uh, for 2018 or, or the foreseeable future? Is there there's one area that you could just hint at that uh, might potentially be a threat or a danger or a point? Yeah, this, I mean, this isn't uh, a particularly novel insight and they will have heard it probably ad nauseum, but um, if they're caught up in cryptocurrencies, I would get out. There will be some winners but it'll take time to figure out who that's going to be. And it will absolutely not be Bitcoin ah. uh, because log technology platform. Uh, so it, so Bitcoin is the Neanderthal in this, on this game. They're already dead. If you, there are, there are economic storms coming. And when that happens, the buildings are still there. The farms are still there. The income producing real estate still exists. Uh, what gets wiped away are the tertiary assets, the paper assets, the 401ks, anything tied to currency, tied to fiat currency gets devalued as these governments all destroy their debt obligations by destroying their currency. Now, it doesn't they don't like it. They don't want to do it. They don't want to destroy right. the life savings of all their pensioners, but they don't have any choice. They, they literally have no choice. And so they always do this. So for your listeners, Jim would say have at least 10% of your assets in hard assets like gold and silver. I'm, I'm more the Nassim Taleb side. Um, I say 80, 80%. Now, he doesn't think that gold necessarily, but he has said um, uh, do a barbell strategy where you've got 80 to 90% rock solid safe and then save 10 to 20% for the most high-flying speculations you can find. Yep. And, and, and for me, now at that time he wrote that, maybe, maybe T-bills looked better than they do to me today. Um, he said, you know, like T-bills, <laughs> I would say gold. <laughs> um, and, yeah. and so that's what I've done. I've got 80% of our, of our family assets in, in precious metals and 20% reserved for, you know, the coolest multi-billion dollar project I could find that I did, you know, I'm doing with Jim Records. So right. for your investors, I would, I would get away from tertiary assets. Look at the Exeter pyramid. Look at the John Exeter inverted pyramid uh, he drew yeah. in the late 60s. And, and that's a really good example. Just mentally draw that into thirds and recognize that the bottom third are primary assets, the middle third are these secondary assets, and the top third are those tertiary assets. And they just get they get stripped away in the storms that come. And it's it's just inevitable. You can't have a 40-year failed fiat currency experiment end gracefully, right? There's never been a time in human history where the whole world has been in this monopoly money house of mirrors for so long. It's never happened in human history, which is why we're seeing things that's never happened in history, right? Whether that's negative interest rates or 5,000 year lows and bond yields, yeah. I mean, these things have never happened. Well, that that's not going to end well. <laughs> and, and so 
for your your folks, I would I would say keep a monster box of silver in the house in case we you know doesn't necessarily mean we're going to have an EMP explosion overhead. Puerto Rico didn't have an EMP explosion, and yet they can't buy or sell because they have no electricity powers. To right, what would five hundred one ounce silver coins do for you there? Right, it could help keep your family alive. So throw a monster box of silver in the closet and forget about it. Uh, get 10, 20% of your assets into gold and silver bullion and just start getting away from tertiary assets best you can. And I would think Bitcoin would be the the most fluffy, goofy, you know, <laughs> you know as, as, at least in the tulip bulb scandal, you got to keep the damn flower, <laughs> right? I mean, what, what are you going to get? Jim has the, a, a beautiful formation for this. He says the tulip bulb scandal was a um, a bubble and a scam, but it wasn't a fraud, right? Because you got to keep the the flower <laughs> and 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 the um, when I say fraud, I mean a Ponzi. And when you when you look at Bernie Madoff, you know his his was a uh, his was a, a scam and a Ponzi, a Ponzi and a fraud, but it wasn't a bubble, right? Right. And yet Bitcoin is all three. It's a Ponzi and a fraud mm. and a bubble all at the same time. Um, that is not going to end well for folks. So if you've got some assets in it, get them out. Get them out. And, and <laughs> trust me on this. Um, and, and get some assets. And even if you don't, even if you want to leave it in speculatively, fine. People have made a lot of money on it, and, and some people will make more. Um, but get a chunk of your assets into primary wealth, gold and silver bullion, or agriculture, or uh, multifamily apartment complexes—things that'll spin off, you know, uh, revenue for you, real assets—and right. try to the extent possible to push away from or get away from, you know, the derivatives contracts, the the futures contracts, all the paper assets that that are necessary in an advanced society, and they have their place. I don't mean to minimize them, but in these great currency resets, these are the things that are just destroyed, and and you don't want to be caught in that in the gears of that kevin that's not advice uh thank you for sharing that and i cannot help but agree with uh with everything you said there in the last bit so um but thanks so much for coming on the show this is a really really interesting episode i think uh the listeners are going to really enjoy it and i appreciate your time and i'm looking forward to hearing more about you in the news and and uh and seeing how how maryland does in the future so thanks again kevin well thank you jay it's a real pleasure and it's always a uh, it's always fun to catch up with you thanks all right take care bye i hope you enjoyed today's episode all the show notes and links can be found over at jkimshow.com Come back often and make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of The J. Kim Show. I'd love to hear your comments. You can find me on Twitter at jkimmer, J-A-Y-K-I-M-M-E-R. See you guys next week. This podcast is brought to you by Hack Your Fitness, the high achiever's guide to getting ripped in under three hours a week. If you're anything like me, you're probably working a full-time job or jobs and trying to find time to balance family life, social life, and last but not least, fitness. Look, I get it. I'm a full-time investor and entrepreneur myself and father of two. So how am I able to stay fit year-round without spending hours and hours in the gym killing myself on the cardio machine? 
After struggling for the last 15 years trying every workout and diet under the sun, I finally designed a system that allows me to achieve and maintain single-digit body fat for life in under three hours a week. Cardio not required. Head on over to hackyour.fitness and download my free 13-page guide that teaches you the simple science behind efficient fitness and smart nutrition and gives you everything you need to know to finally take control of your life. That's hackyour.fitness. 